Well, let me first uh, thank you, Patricia, for uh, inviting me and us, actually. It's uh, very happy to do this uh, talk with, uh, with Kate and everyone for coming. Uh, we're going to start really quickly because we have a lot of uh, topics to address, so bon appétit à, à tous. Uh, I understand that some of you uh, just came back from The Hague, where you attended two hearings in the Ukraine-Russia uh, case, so you might um, have noticed uh, by yourself what you will hear today. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to take you through uh, the different states of uh, ICJ proceedings. Um, and as we come to the oral hearings, you will see that we brought some special guests with us on TV. Uh, let's start with the beginning. And um, once the case has been filed, uh, it's time for the parties to assemble their team. Uh, both teams are, um, uh, will be uh, led by an agent. Uh, he has a he or she, uh, my apologize, has a key role in uh, ICJ cases. He represents the state. So whatever he says, uh, whatever statement he makes are uh, um, binding uh, uh, to uh, the state. And this is why this is a particularly sensitive uh, political choice for a state to impart an agent. Uh, usually it's a national. Of the of the of the state, uh, it happened in the past. Uh, for example, in the DRC versus Uganda case, that uh, foreign um, uh, lawyer in that case uh, be uh, the agent of one of the parties, the uh, the DRC in that one. And you, because it's a political choice, uh, the agent the agent may change. Uh, along the case because of a new government elected uh, who'd like somebody close to their um, political party to be appointed. Uh, that happened in a case in which, uh, in which I worked. Uh, that happened also in, a, in the famous Bosnia versus uh, Serbia case. This one is very particular because, so as you may know, this is a try... Um, it's a, the head of state is actually a group of three people, one Bosniak, one Croat, and one Serb. And so in the middle of the case, uh, um, uh, the, new the new agent sorry, uh, of uh, Bosnia sent a letter to the court saying that uh, Bosnia was willing to uh, withdraw the case. Uh, before the court, which led to a number of exchange and clarification given by Bosnia, um, which finally confirmed that Bosnia was willing to uh, move on and continue the, that case. So this is the head of the team in each case. Uh, then you come to the legal team, which is the second, probably most important part of it. Um, Usually it's two to five uh, lawyer. Sometimes much more. It depends on the on, on the case. It can go up to seven, eight uh, in, in certain ones. Um, or they're picked up. They're well. They're mostly professors and barristers. Um, some law firms are involved in certain cases, but it's for 
for most of them, they're just either professors and or um, barristers. They part as what some have called the invisible uh, bar or uh, the mafia, um, because it's a very uh, small group of people, uh, like I would say around 30 people have um, appeared more than three times before the before the before the court, and there's they always speak. You have at least one or two uh, members of that mafia um, hired by by the by the state parties. Um, there's well the the last debate we which was held here uh, between uh, Alain Pelé and James Crawford. Um, was on the difference, if any, between uh, common lawyers and continental lawyers. In my opinion, there are not many differences uh, because there is only one international law and we are uh, learning the same, applying the same. Except maybe that, uh, I don't know if, it, if Anglo-Saxon means anything to... Uh, to uh, to people from the from common law, but they tend to be more attracted by procedural quibbles than continental lawyers do. Uh, I'm sure she'll disagree with that. <laughs> Maybe I could come in there. Yeah. Is that a good time? Oh yes, please. <laughs> um, I think one of the interesting things about litigating before the ICJ is that you do have legal teams that are composed of people coming from very different legal traditions, the most stark contrast being between people who are qualified or educated in the civil law system and people who are qualified and educated in the common law system. Um, obviously, these lawyers are not subject to any sort of common set of professional standards which can result in some um, difficult issues or um, sort of cultural differences that need to be overcome in the context of a team. I would say as well that there's almost always a mix between um, lawyers who are focused on um, more academic work and, and practitioners. And that also um, gives rise to some interesting cultural differences and differences in approach. And I think that you see that most starkly in relation to procedural strategy. Um, that's certainly been my experience, that practitioners do perhaps tend to engage more with procedural issues. Um, than academics are inclined to do, but then the academics, as a general rule, tend to bring a depth of knowledge of a specific area which can also be quite useful in a, in a case. So it's all those different dynamics that you have going on that make it interesting but also can make it quite um, challenging. Um, in terms of... I do think that there are... My experience of working with civil law qualified and trained lawyers is that they do tend to have quite a different approach to common lawyers. That perhaps is not really borne out in the early stages of a case, but tends to be borne out more in the hearings, um, which we'll come to a little bit later. Yeah, okay. Um, then uh, you also have, um, alongside lawyers, uh, all, um, very different experts depending on the case. Uh, cartographers, hydrographers, geologists, uh, biologists, historians, uh, who will help the team to um, to have a like a multi-faced perspective of uh, of the case, and then you have um, 
the fourth part of the team is what we can call the home team, if I may say so, uh, who are diplomats or um, people working for the state party. And they usually bring all the evidence, the material, the, um, the political importance or sensitivity of a case. And they're really very important in the team because without them, we don't have anything to say or to show to the court or any other tribunal, of course. Um, and well, and then, so for, let's say, states who are uh, usual clients of the court, uh, the team... We represent a couple of them. Yeah. <laughs> different ones of these. The team are rather um, uh, small, like around 10 to 15 people, but for certain states, they can bring like 60, 70, 80 people with them uh, in hearings, depending on the importance of the case. Uh, in, in one of which we were both uh, working, uh, in my team we had four or five foreign, uh, former foreign ministers uh, who had always, or each of them has something to say about the period um, in which they were uh, acting as foreign minister. Um, just just a quick word and, and um, the 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 lawyers one last point. Usually, when uh, parties are OECD members, uh, half of the lawyers are national of that uh, of these parties. But when it comes to non non OECD um, states, the number dropped down to fifteen percent. Uh, which means that in certain teams you don't have any lawyer who is a national of the state party uh, we represent, uh, which I think uh, is, well, for us it's good, but uh, I think that for the, for the country it's, it's always helpful to have one lawyer, at least one lawyer, who's uh, a national of that, uh, of that uh, state party. Do you have anything to add? Uh, uh, once you have your team, uh, you know that in certain cases you can appoint uh, Judge Haddock before the ICJ. Uh, when on the bench, you don't have any national of that uh, of that state party. Uh, that's another very very difficult choice. Um, who are they? Usually, they're former ICJ judges or ITLOS judges. That would be maybe 80 or 90 percent of the of the ad hoc judges which have been nominated until today. Um, in a recent case, you have two um, you have two outliers which were nominated by Colombia, uh, which were I believe David Caron and Charles Brower. Uh, they are both famous, but then not very much into um, interstate. Uh, this would set them whether ICJ or, or uh, PCA arbitration, for, for example. Um, how to choose one? In my opinion, uh, they, I would certainly not advise to choose a national because it's just a national. Um, and I would not advise to choose somebody who's too supportive of your case. Uh, after all, it's just one voice out of 15, 16, or 17. Uh, so it will not win the case for the appointing state. 
what is more important, I think, is that he's perceived as a good lawyer and reasonable and impartial. That's what matters, in our opinion, because uh, his role is mainly to make sure that the position of his or her appointing uh, state has been heard and understood by the bench. That's what matters most, in my, in my opinion. I think that's a pretty commonly shared view on that. <laughs> On that, uh, on that issue. Mm. I think one of the things that makes um, appointing a judge ad hoc quite difficult is that in 2002 the court passed a new practice direction, uh, which in principle I think is good, but it provides that no person that's acted as counsel or agent within the last three years can be nominated as an ad hoc judge. Um, there's a second practice direction that says that nobody who's appeared as a judge or in the registry, who served as a judge or in the registry in the last three years, can appear as agent, counsel or advocate. So there is a separation between um, acting as judge ad hoc and acting um, as counsel in cases. And obviously, a lot of the people who are very experienced before the court will will choose to remain on the counsel side um, because it's because they, well, for whatever reason, perhaps they enjoy it more. Um, but it does mean that there's quite a limited pool of candidates. I agree with Benjamin that, um, that the most likely candidates are going to be former ICJ judges. Um, I think there's a number of cases. I mean, uh, former President Guillaume was judge ad hoc in a number of cases at the moment. Judge Simmer is serving, I think, in a couple of cases as well. And that's, I think that's also a question of influence, of relationships that the person already has within the court that can be um, quite helpful in, in conveying a position and sort of trying to ensure an outcome that's acceptable to the appointing state um, in terms of the judgment. So now you have your team, you have, a, you have your ad hoc judge, uh, it's time to go to the procedure. Uh, as you may have noted, it's, well, at least for the horror hearings, it's very formal, very traditional. Uh, it's difficult to change anything in the court. Inflexible. Yeah. I like it. Uh, I think it's important for this one to stay very traditional. Um, and every case starts with the first procedural meeting with the president. Uh, who will meet with the, with the agent of both parties and sometimes lawyers. And as she has, she has been involved in, in several of these meetings, I will yield the floor to Kate. Um, I mean, it's a very formal procedure. Normally the first meeting is convened to discuss what sort of timetable the parties would like for the written, written pleadings. And usually the, the court... Um, sort of gives the parties what they ask for. The, the president tries to build consensus between the parties and come to an agreement as to what the procedure should be going forward. Um, it's not a particularly contentious meeting um, and there's not a lot of argument between the parties. It's usually, um, well, in my case, it's, I've always seen it as being extremely um, respectful and professional. Um, once you have started an application, when you, from the time that you file an application in terms of procedure, all the correspondence that the parties have with each other or with the court concerning the case goes through the registry. Um, it's not like in ICSID arbitration where they just set up, set up a, an email address that has you know, all the arbitrators, the, the, the registry and um, all the parties copied to each other. Instead, you send a letter 
to the court and the registrar of the court writes a cover letter which is attached to the letter and then conveys it to the other party and then the other party replies and the registrar writes another cover letter, sends it to the first party and it goes back and forth a little bit like this, which in my view is, and all these letters are sent by fax actually, which I'm still surprised that people have faxes. Um, so it, it is a slightly clunky procedure, I think, compared to um, other cases. And I would like to see that there was a bit more efficiency about that procedure. Um, I mean, everybody in the world uses email now. I think you can convey documents by, by email, for example. Um, uh, so, but anyway, that's the way it works at the moment. Yeah, the, I think the code is trying from time to time to improve that. Yes. It takes time. Uh, on an application that I recently was involved in preparing, I refused to put the fax number on the application uh, for the party because I thought maybe this would encourage them to use email, but it doesn't seem to have worked. <laughs> <laughs> so. They are, so they have come up, come up for example, with those uh, practice directions, uh, which Kate mentioned. Uh, I really don't understand why they're choosing that um, system. They they have, they are, they can modify their rules as much as they want, and they chosen these directions, which are drafted uh, in, if I may say so, UN Security Council wording, uh, with words like discourages, uh, bear in mind, wishes, urges, or should refrain. Uh, so we don't know whether they're binding or not. Uh, if somebody, if Kate is tomorrow appointed as Judge Adok, I don't know if she'll be able to sit uh, because I'm not sure those directions are binding. And uh, sometimes they're not very useful. They're just uh, uh, just a copy of an article in the in the of the rules. Um, like practice 11 says that in provisional measure hearings, the parties should limit themselves to what is relevant to provisional measures which is not very helpful. Um, but it changes, I think, a little bit, at least. Um, so as you certainly know, um, you have a written phase and an oral phase. For the written one, it's one to two uh, rounds. And for oral hearings now, it's usually two to three weeks, depending on the, on the case. It was several months in the in the in the past but that has that has changed obviously the proceedings may be interrupted uh, in several ways preliminary objections provisional measures intervention join the counterclaims site visits sometimes uh, we won't have time to go through uh, these today but they are more and more important and uh, state tend to use them increasingly i, I would i would think which can uh, make the proceedings up to 11, 12, or 16 years in, in certain cases. Uh, the average now is four. At least it's been the case for the last 15, 15 years. Starting with the written proceedings, so uh, now it's, it's more and more common to have only one round of written pleadings. In the past, it was always two rounds, uh, for sure. Now the president, since President Tomka, I would say, uh, um, they try to limit to round one if possible. It happened even if the uh, claimant asked for uh, a second round. I mean, in, I think in Japan, for example, they, they were willing to have a second round on a specific, specific issue, and that was refused by, uh, 
by uh, by the president. Um, this is important uh, for two, for at least two reasons for lawyers. Uh, so it's a team. So you share the job uh, and the different chapters that will be written. Usually, when you write a chapter, you plead it during the whole hearings. So when you share the task, you try to get what you want to argue hourly. Um, they're usually very, very long. Um, it's, uh, it obviously depends on who's uh, writing them. Usually law firms are keen to uh, write a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot compared to barristers or, or professors. Um, in a recent case, which has not uh, been decided because the party settled, uh, one of the judges noted that uh, for the written pleadings, you had uh, 13,000 pages, uh, 18 volume and 90 expert reports. Uh, I don't know if all of them were very helpful, but that's just to give you an idea of how long it can be when it comes to when it involves science especially and as Kay told you the, the delay and the, the length of the written phase uh, depends on the parties mostly uh, some will ask for six months, nine months, one year to write a single piece of, of uh, written pleadings uh, so if the code is perceived as slow, it's also because the uh, parties want it this way. And they, they prefer to have time to prepare their written pleadings. When it comes to countries which are uh, usual suspects of the code, they, they can do it quickly and than, than others, I, I believe. And I think that that is something that's really in the control of the parties. There have been some recent cases where they've moved quite quickly. For example, the dispute that's pending before the court at the moment between the, Iran and the US, their pleading schedule is quite short. Um, Benjamin and I are both acting on opposite sides in a case where the court has just given what I think is the shortest <coughs> time limit ever for the filing of written pleadings, 45 days, um, which is extremely short timetable, but, um, but it's, it was what um, the claimant asked for in that case. So it really is in, control of, in the control of the parties. In my view, the, the written pleadings are extremely important. You have to attach all your evidence to the pleadings, by the way, so it's not just a, a legal argument, but you have to include all the documents in, on which you intend to rely. Um, and as Benjamin mentioned, the court has um, begun to... Sh the, they've, they've sort of moved in the direction of shortening the oral pleadings. So you really need to make sure that you have everything that you um, will need to refer to um, and that you can also, you know, develop an argument in the written pleadings that you could refer back to in the oral phase if you don't have time. I think this is somewhere where there's sometimes a little bit of cultural difference as well between um, civil law trained lawyers and <coughs> common law um, lawyers because uh, common lawyers tend to be used to longer hearings. Civil laws, lawyers tend to be used to summary hearings with very little reliance on oral evidence. Um, so again, that's something where you see a bit of difference. Um, the, there used to be a more common practice of pleadings being um, simultaneous. 
So the parties would both file their memorial at the same time and then both file the second round at the same time. The court has actively discouraged that and I think that that is really quite good because you generally need to know what case it is. It's very inefficient to file a pleading without knowing exactly what the case is that you need to answer um, and it allows the, the parties to do that more precisely. As Benjamin mentioned, it used to be as a matter of course that there would be a second round. Now, effectively, I think it's at the election of the applicant um, whether they wish to ask for a second round. And I know in a couple of cases, a respondent has been a little bit surprised by not being able to file a second round. I think this has resulted in a situation where perhaps before there was a tendency on the part of respondent states to hold things back for the second round of written pleadings uh, for more of an element of surprise. And that I think has effectively eliminated that practice. So you really have to put all of your evidence on the table in the first round. Indeed. <laughs> Okay, uh, so now let's move to the most interesting part of the case, which uh, are the oral hearings. Uh, that's, that's, that's where you feel the solemnity and the tradition of the court the most. Um, that's the end of the case, so, and there is no second chance, no appeal, nothing. So you have to come up with your best or because you won't be able to, uh, to come back later. Some people find our hearings uh, less and less useful in cases, and it will be a, um, a gain of money and time to avoid having them. I believe they're still important in, in, in certain aspects. Um, you see, we'll, we'll discuss that uh, in, in a few, uh, I'm sure. Um, when it started, I mean, have you, for those who've been there this week, uh, you've heard the La Cour, that uh, uh, these are the words the bailiff says at the beginning of every session of, uh, of the court. And they're important in, in certain states because, uh, and for certain cases, because they, they're live. Uh, and they are broadcasted in 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 public places uh, in in certain countries. Uh, certainly not in European countries. I mean, in France, nobody knows when we have a case before the court, uh, and I'm pretty sure it's the same here for for the United Kingdom. Uh, this. Yeah, no, I was going to say that there was another case that Benjamin and I were both involved in again on opposite sides where the hearings were broadcast live on um, something like 24 different television channels in um, the South American countries. I actually visited there the following year and my taxi driver told me all about what he thought about the lawyers. They had done <laughs> cartoons of the lawyers that were published in the papers and they did public polls on giving them rankings as in who of our team do you like the best. Um, so we tried to keep those from the who advocates won? until the end of the hearing because we didn't want them, the one who came last to feel bad. But, um, but it was, there was a large measure of public engagement in the case, uh, which I think is, you know, reflects the political pressure, especially that's felt um, on the home team and on the agent um, when they're very weighty issues that are before the court. For us, it's just um, sort of quite entertaining because you come out of the court and it's like being greeted by paparazzi and um, if you're there with somebody in a wig and gown then you'll no doubt be photographed um, and it's slightly entertaining but it just does reflect I think a significant measure of public and political pressure. Yeah uh, in that case I, I, during the hearings I received eight emails from the other side. Uh, Not from the lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> 
hate mail. No. Yeah. No, not 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 from you. Not from you. Not from the other side. Um, as, as you've noted, it's very 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 formal. You have limited time. Um, the pleader reads a text. Uh, there is no impro uh, because you have live translation, so you have to give your text in advance. Uh, so that the translator may, the interpreters may uh, translate your your uh, text live. Um, you have to file your uh, judges folder ahead in the morning, uh, so that the, the registry and the president may review it to see if everything is in order. Uh, and that makes uh, the the process less lively. I mean, if you're in the in the public. Uh, you probably didn't have the best time of your life. The first time I, the first time I attended such a hearings, I f fell asleep. Uh, it's a whole different story when you're actually arguing and be, being involved in in these uh, hearings. That's fun. Um, I don't know if you have something to add before we move on with the with the with the guests. Yeah. So just to show you uh, some different advocacy styles, we've prepared some extracts of the pleading. So that's, you may recognize the Great Hall of Justice, uh, which I think it was in Bolivia versus Chile. Uh, to begin with, um, let's uh, go through the British style. And the first one is a local. Now, governments must react to developments, and they sometimes express themselves in terms that are calibrated more to the heat of the day's television headlines than to the coolness of long-term diplomacy. And it would be a cheap shot if Nicaragua were simply to gather some of the immediate reactions of Colombian politicians to the court's 2012 judgment and present them as Colombia's current attitude towards the court. On the other hand, governments may actually mean what they say publicly, particularly when different ministers make the same point repeatedly. On the face of it, these statements coming out of Colombia had two aspects that could not be ignored by Nicaragua. The second one is, I think, my favorite uh, uh, lawyer who have appeared, which who have seen uh, pleading before the court. Uh, he pleads in a quintessentially British manner. It's, uh, I think, it's really the best. Mr. President, members of the court, we now shift gears to the topic of Nicaragua's breaches of international law, and I make three introductory observations. First, as this is not the usual boundary dispute case, but rather an occupy first, justify later case, Costa Rica is seeking more than a declaration as to its sovereignty over Ila Portillos. It seeks a series of declarations and other remedies that relate in particular to Nicaragua's unlawful incursion into Ila Portillos in late 2010, early 2011 and the unlawful construction of the three canyons in Costa Rican territory. Secondly, and this also takes this case away from the norm, the key facts are not in dispute. 
including as to the presence of the Nicaraguan military in Isla Portillos at the relevant points of time. There are points of detail or characterization to iron out, such as whether the first canyon was being constructed or just cleaned or cleared, as Nicaragua maintains. Then we move on to one of the small mafia of international law, which are the Australian. People say that we're overrepresented, but I don't think so. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> Council for Nicaragua gave you two explanations for this delay, neither of them very plausible. First, he said, and I quote, Nicaragua decided that it should deliver its answer to the court rather than to Costa Rica. Well, fair enough. But a letter addressed to the court should take no more time than a letter to Costa Rica. And certainly it does not justify a delay of 26 days. Secondly, he said that it took some time to, and I quote, assemble its legal team, analyse the facts and prepare a submission to the court, end of quote, including translations. He says it hurried to do so. As counsel to a number of states, I would say that no governmental client of mine would consider 26 days to be hurried. Is that it or it's no, finished? No, it should be. Um, it's paused. Is this the moment where we vote? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's okay. No worries. Yeah. It's so important that you can hear it again, right? I think this is quite significant. And I agree with all of it, obviously. Nicaragua decided that it should deliver its
discussion of responsibility for any breach, he said, was premature. These are issues going to the merits, which it is not for the court to decide at this stage. He told you you would have to determine that there were no circumstances precluding wrongfulness and that the acts were attributable to Nicaragua, and you could not do that in 2013. So he said in 2013, it was too early to address the question of breach of your 2011 order. Now in 2015, he tells you it is too late. Then the French, so that's why we have the translated version of the Contendu in front of you. The first one pleads in a very, very French professional manner. Le JD a manifesté par le passé tout le respect qu'il a pour votre compétence. Encore faut-il que celle-ci soit vérifiée lorsque l'objet de l'affaire introduite devant elle peut légitimement en faire douter. Or, ainsi que ma collègue et amie, madame le professeur Pinto, vous l'a dit avant moi, L'article 6 du pacte de Bogota combine des critères temporels et matériels pour marquer les limites de la compétence de la Cour, par ailleurs posées selon l'article 31 du pacte de Bogota. L'article 6, dois-je le rappeler encore une fois, exclut en effet de votre connaissance les questions déjà régies par des accords ou traités en vigueur à la date de la signature du président. En date de signature du pacte de Bogota, c'était le 30 avril 1948, soit il y a presque exactement 67 ans. And the, the second French that we will see um, is also known as the Johnny Depp of international law. Mon collègue Alain Pellet a affirmé que le Costa Rica cherche un blanc sang pour entrer en territoire litigieux. Mais qui cherche ce blanc sang, Monsieur le Président La demande nicaraguayenne de non-indication des mesures conservatoires ne ressemble-t-elle pas à une demande de laisser tout comme le Nicaragua l'a laissé Les défendeurs vous suggèrent en fin de compte, de le blâmer un peu, si vous voulez, dans les motifs de votre ordonnance peut-être, mais surtout de ne rien ordonner de nouveau en attendant l'arrêt sur les fonds. Laissez les cagnons où ils sont et laissez faire la nature, voire l'humain, qui sait. Voilà en résumé le message Nicaragua. Il y a dans cette position nicaraguayenne un sérieux oubli, ou plutôt mépris, de la fonction des mesures conservatoires et de la façon dont les partis doivent se comporter pendant des idées. Ok, so that was for the, for the advocacy styles of, uh, or the different ones that you may uh, find before the court. Uh, now, as, as you've noticed, uh, you have a written text, it's not very lively. So you have to do something to keep the judges awake, uh, which can sometimes be a, be a challenge. Uh, so if you can't really make jokes 
before the court, like uh, you know the story of the man who you don't do that. It's it's impossible. <laughs> so you may use references uh, to literature or uh, even to music and cinema. Uh, the next one you'll see an exchange between uh, Rodman Bundy and Alain Pellet in a in a recent case, which uh, involve also uh, Simon and Garfunkel. You'll see it. Uh, well, let's let's go through it. We'll see the court will not find a single accusation on the record from these senior state representatives that they considered that a dispute had emerged. You won't find it. Whether as a result of President Santos' remarks or otherwise. I respectfully invite the court to look at the record as a whole. There is a consistent pattern of statements emanating from President Ortega that show just the opposite of what our colleagues on the other side contend. I referred to many of these on Monday. Council for Nicaragua studiously avoided mentioning any of them yesterday. Sometimes, Mr. President, it's instructive to listen to the silences. So you may have recognized the title of, a, of, a, of a Simon and Garfunkel's uh, song. So to reply to that, uh, I was assisting uh, Alain Pelé on, on, on this case. We have prepared something, but we were told not to run it by the registry and the uh, president. So that's what really that's what happened, and then you will see what we prepared. Mr. Burdi said, "Sometimes, Mr. President, it is instructive to listen to the silences." As Simon and Garfunkel rightly sung, the truths can be whispered in the sands of silence. J'avais prévu de vous faire entendre quelques notes de cette magnifique chanson, mais il semble que quelques notes de musique ne siedent pas à la dignité de ces lieux. Dommage, c'est vraiment une très belle chanson. Said, Sometimes, Mr. President, it is instructive to listen to the silences. As Simon and Garfunkel rightly sung, the truths can be whispered in the sands of silence. I don't know why they refuse that, honestly. Um, and apart from music, you have also cinema, and you understand the reference to uh, Johnny Depp. Colombia leaves Nicaragua with a narrow band of sea extending only some 55 miles from its mainland coast, even less from its fringing islands. The result, Colombia gets 87% of the maritime area lying between itself and Nicaragua that is not claimed by third states. Nicaragua gets 13%. Last Monday, Ambassador Arguello spoke of Colombia's aspiration 
to be queen of the Caribbean. I think he was too generous. They look more to me like pirates of the Caribbean. Last week, I even thought I saw Johnny Depp sitting at their council table. <laughs> but it turned out to be my good-looking friend, Marcelo Cohn. That's Paul Reichler, by the way, who's at Folly Hoag in DC and um, has appeared before the court for a, for a very long period of time, having yeah. acted for Nicaragua in their first uh, case in the 1980s against the United States. And then you'll see another barrister, which is also one of the best, I, I, I think, lawyer, which, which uh, who has appeared before the, before the court recently. Uh, Mr. President, it's an honor to appear before you, and as the special auditors 